Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. You may have seen your friends on Facebook over the last week checking in at Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Many of them weren't physically there, but their acknowledgement of this place is a sign of growing attention and support of the Standing Rock Sioux. The tribe found in North and South Dakotas has been protesting a multi-billion dollar pipeline project near its reservation. Today, where we live, we look at why the issue has attracted other Indian nations and many other Americans to join the Sioux in protesting the pipeline. They include Connecticut tribes. We'll speak to members of the Mohegan and Mashantucket Pequot tribes about the significance of this moment for Native American people. And we'll hear how the past informs today's current events. And later, many of us wouldn't mind cheaper utility bills, but at what cost? Advocates for cleaner energy say the region should be investing in more renewable energy than in fossil fuels. Greg Ladke, the Hartford Current's environmental reporter, will be here later to explain why natural gas pipeline projects have stalled here in Connecticut and elsewhere in New England. First, have you been paying attention to Standing Rock? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wnpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. To update us on the protests that have been months long, joining us by phone now is Stephen Mufson. He's energy correspondent for The Washington Post. Stephen, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So update us. I know most people by now have heard about the Dakota Access Pipeline, but who has been there protesting uh, since April, I believe? Well, people have been protesting there for months, but it has really heated up recently, partly because of the celebrities that have gone out there. Uh, Mark Ruffalo, Jesse Jackson, um, a lot of people from all over the country. And it's also heated up because it's been more of a confrontation. Lots of uh, police have showed up to try to keep people off Army Corps land and out of the pathway of the pipeline, and 141 arrests were made just one day last week alone. And what are the reasons, first off, for this pipeline, and then the reasons against construction of it? Yeah, the motivation is to try to uh, build a transportation link that would take crude oil from the boom area of the Bakken in uh, northwest North Dakota and to take that oil to uh, a place where it can be refined and look, uh, hook up with other pipelines, and that would be in Illinois. So it's about a 1,170-mile 1, pipeline that would carry uh, five, 600,000 barrels a day. And the Standing Rock uh, Sioux Tribe, they're found in both North and South Dakota. So this pipeline construction is about a half a mile away from the reservation. But what are some of their concerns? Well, their concerns are twofold. One, they don't want uh, sacred grounds and burial grounds to be disturbed. Also, with, uh, there are some uh, notable archaeological sites in that area. And the second concern is the danger of a leak in the pipeline that could occur on a river crossing and uh, pollute the waters that they use for all sorts of purposes. The company has taken precautions about that. It's saying that it's going to dig 90 to 115 feet below the bottom of the river, uh, quite a feat.
feet, actually, but uh, using horizontal drilling. But um, it's a big river. These pipelines are there a long time. There have been a few bad experiences in other parts of the country, and so that's a very real concern. And so from the company's standpoint, they want this pipeline to uh, be able to move, uh, what is it, uh, half a million barrels a day versus uh, having to pay the cost of rail. Uh, But there are concerns, the environmental concerns and the concerns about how this is um, impacting the tribe and and the sacred lands that are near that pipeline. That's right. Um, I mean, the company will argue that this is safer than carrying it by rail car. And, uh, of course, it's cheaper. Uh, but there is a group of people that says, well, it's not a question of rail versus pipe. A lot of environmentalists just want to keep that oil in the ground. That's uh, an important development in the environmental movement in these last four or five years, the idea that you would try to cut off pipelines as sort of the mid middle stage of the whole uh, supply chain and that that would uh, encourage people to move faster toward renewables. Let's talk about um, who's profiting uh, from this project. Obviously, the government of North Dakota would be getting millions, but at the same time, they've been spending millions on security because of these protests. Right. I think the the government uh, is uh, going to get its tax revenue probably either way, uh, except, of course, if if this ends up uh, discouraging producers from producing in in that area at all. But, But the real winners are are the oil producers in the in the Bakken area, um, which will have uh, new options for transportation, the pipeline company itself, of course, and um, there will be some additional tax benefits perhaps in certain jurisdictions, but the big winners would be the pipeline company and the people drilling for oil in northwest North Dakota. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the phone with us is Stephen Mufson. He's energy correspondent for the Washington Post. Today we're looking at um, what's been happening in North Dakota with the Standing Rock uh, Sioux Tribe and many uh, Indian nations around the country, as well as many Americans joining this protest against this um, uh, multi-billion-dollar pipeline. If you want to join the conversation, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Again, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Now, Stephen, I understand you've covered uh, the Keystone. XL uh, pipeline and, and the controversy surrounding that. What are the parallels between this project? There are a lot of parallels. The Keystone uh, raised a lot of water issues. It crossed an enormous number of water waterways, um, and uh, it also crossed a lot of uh, Native American lands. I did a story about that out of Oklahoma uh, because there are an enormous number of Native Americans in Oklahoma, of course, having been driven there by the federal government uh, many, many years ago. Um, So there are concerns there. Um, And, uh, of course, in the end, they weren't completely resolved, and that northern part of the pipeline never got built. Uh, President Obama only has a a few more uh, months in office. Uh, What could happen um, with the the election of a new president, not only to this uh, project here uh, in North Dakota, but uh, the Keystone XL application? Well, the Keystone application, uh, the Keystone fight is in court, actually. The uh, Trans-Canada has filed suit, um, so that, that'll, that'll drag on for some time. This, in this case, um, I think that the, uh, the, uh, the pipeline, the, the president has indicated that the Army Corps will reconsider the route. The way he phrased that 
uh, made it sound like it wasn't a question of blocking the pipeline so much as rerouting it, and he sounded optimistic about some sort of change. Of course, all this will be easier after, for him in a way after Tuesday. He doesn't want it to become a big electoral issue for, for Hillary Clinton. And um, Hillary Clinton has issued a statement that was uh, fairly neutral. It didn't uh, really satisfy the environmentalists who are opposed to this pipeline, and there have been some uh, tough words out of them about that. When we look at um, why this route, again, that would be half a mile away from the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, you know, the Army Corps studied an alternate route that would be along Bismarck. Why was that route not chosen? Well, the, the opponents of the pipeline say that it wasn't chosen because uh, it would have crossed uh, areas where more white people live, basically. And this is uh, one of the arguments against the pipeline, is that its uh, route is kind of uh, racist, is the way a lot of people put it, and that this is a question of environmental justice on top of everything else. And could I ask you before we let you go, Stephen, when we talk about, again, the construction of this pipeline, you know, I've read differing accounts that this Texas-based company was beginning this construction long before all the necessary permits were in place. I had not seen that, and I would doubt that very much. I mean, there are certain things you can do ahead of time. In the Keystone, in the Keystone instance, I'm a little more familiar with that, there was a lot of construction that uh, took place in Canada, before they got the permits to the United States. Um, and there was warehousing of equipment and things like that, but you couldn't actually cross uh, the, they can't finish the pipeline, they can't do the most important parts of, of the construction without, without permits and without all the permits. And uh, because the Standing Rock Sioux had sued for an injunction, a judge ruled against that injunction, but there are parts of this construction that have been postponed, is that right? Well, the part where they are, the protests are taking mm -hmm. place right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, the pipe, this, this pipeline is about three-quarters built already. <clears throat> so um, this is one of, the, one of the final areas, and it doesn't look like it's going to get resolved in the, the next uh, few weeks. And Stephen, um, also uh, just a quick question from one of our listeners. Um, you know, she's she is confused, and we're going to be talking about this later with some um, tribal members here in Connecticut of why there is so much opposition if this pipeline is not going to be um, in the reservation, but it is on what's considered treaty land. Can you can you can you describe and explain that uh, confusion? Yeah, sure. The the reservation was created by an act of Congress in 1889, I believe, but there were treaties earlier in 1851 and 1868, which gave a lot more land to Native Americans. So, uh, and since the tribes are really considered sovereign, those treaties are in the minds of many people more important than the Act of Congress. The treaties ceded to the uh, Sioux or Lakota people much more of the land west of the Missouri River than, uh, than the reservation includes. So, Part of what's in, you know, involved in this whole controversy is a controversy about how Native Americans have been treated, whether they've really been treated as uh, sovereign uh, treaty uh, participants or whether they've been treated in some uh, harsher way. So that, uh, that border that uh, people talk about is the, is the reservation border. It's not the border in the minds of a lot of Native Americans. And, of course, they have traveled – 
uh, you know, all over uh, the region, and so there's a lot of archaeological and burial sites there. I want to thank Stephen Mufson, energy correspondent for the Washington Post. It's good to, to get a, a, a good description of why this has become such an, an issue. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Glad to be here. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about Standing Rock, a Sioux tribe in uh, the North and South Dakotas. Uh, they have been joined by many uh, Indian nations and other Americans in protesting this multi-billion dollar pipeline. We're going to hear from two members of Connecticut tribes coming up after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Dakota Access Pipeline Project has attracted national and international attention since the summer. Protesters, they call themselves protectors, have been gathering in North Dakota since April when construction was first beginning on the pipeline that will carry more than half a, bi- a, bi- half a million rather barrels of oil a day under the Missouri River and across four states. Just yesterday, interfaith clergy from around the country were the latest to make a stand against that pipeline. There are environmental concerns, of course, but the Standing Rock Sioux also say the pipeline project, located half a mile from the reservation, will harm the sacred land of its people. The whole confrontation recalls the painful history of the U.S. government taking land away from the first Americans. To talk more about how history is informing today's events in North Dakota, we're joined by two members of Connecticut tribes. They both have participated in what they have, what they say have been largely peaceful protests near Cannonball, North Dakota. In studio with me is medicine woman Melissa Tantaquidgen-Zobel of the Mohegan tribe in Uncasville. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Also, Dominique Beltran, a member of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation in southeastern Connecticut. Thank you, Dominique, for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'll start with you, Melissa. You traveled to North Dakota. Tell us what what led you there. Well, first, uh, thank you so much for covering this important issue at Standing Rock, which has kind of been out of the media so much lately. Uh, And I'm also glad you mentioned water protectors, because that's really what I'm going to focus on. I was really brought into this issue, uh, like many Americans, from what I wasn't seeing in the media and what I was hearing on social media. And our chief, Lynn Malerba, joined uh, myself and several other tribal members in a rally in Hartford that was put on by some of the local environmental groups. Uh, and, And that was a wonderful grassroots movement. And from there, we became more involved with some of the folks at Standing Rock. Uh, the critical shift actually came from a 13-year-old girl in our tribe. She uh, wanted to call all of us to really be our best selves and protect Mother Earth. And in fact, I actually have some of her words here. She went before our people. She said, I am a water protector. When I found out that many tribes from all over the country were making a trip to Standing Rock, I began to think how important it was for my ancestors and how sad it was that the pipeline would go through their sacred grounds. And I thought about how important water is to all tribes and all humans. And in my soul, I needed to be there. And I told my dad I had to go. So that's Joyce Iloff, uh, Dancing Willow. And so she and her dad and some other Mohegans headed uh, to Standing Rock. I went with my husband. And uh, I was very fortunate that um, our tribe had, of course, like many of the other tribes, we had given, you know, monetary gifts and were bringing presents. But and, and many basic supplies to the tribe. Uh, we were also fortunate that we had a kind of a special gift, and, and I can talk about that later. And Dominique, you're with the Mashantucket Pequot tribe, also in southeastern Connecticut. When did you go to North Dakota? Um, we went in mid-September. Um, there was actually two vans of us. Um, I was reading about it a lot for about two weeks, and every night I would read about it, I would 
my heart would hurt and I just decided I have to get out there I have to do something I have to be there my I just was drawn there so um kind of recruited my mom and uh we drove out there and we prayed with them we witnessed a lot of ceremonies from different nations um we were welcomed right away it was I can't find the perfect sum of words to describe how overwhelmingly beautiful it was uh just to pull up to the entrance of the camp and see the perimeter of uh, the entrance lined up with the different nations flags right away I immediately decided I didn't want to leave I didn't even get out of the car yet so um yeah it was it was an honor to be there and and to be surrounded by so much love and just just so much good medicine it was it was an honor you know, we heard from the Washington Post reporter earlier in the show about how a lot more attention now on Standing Rock uh, because of uh, celebrities and, and certain uh, media accounts. Um, but, you know, there have been some confrontations, but largely, you say, when you were there, peaceful protests. Very peaceful. It, it's what they have going on there now with um, the militarized police forces and uh, the the shootings and the tear gas and everything is completely unnecessary. These are the most peaceful group of people I have ever met in my whole life. Um, it's it, it's it's really sad to see it, and um, that's why I appreciate you guys giving us the opportunity to actually share what's really going on in the camps. It's nothing but love. There's just this this natural order and respect for everyone and everything. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. It just it feels right when you're there. You don't want to leave. It sucks you in. <laughs> and how has explain how this particular um, pipeline project has um, unified Indian nations around this country? Well, it's it's really just been incredible. Uh, all of the different people that we have encountered at Standing Rock and elsewhere are all on the same page. And and this isn't just really Indian nations. Uh, I kind of want to expand beyond that. Um, yesterday and the day before, there were about 500 clergymen who went to Standing Rock. And while I was there, I met with uh, my counterparts from Standing Rock, um, the medicine chief, Orville Looking Horse, and others. Uh, and, and of course, they're amazingly wonderful, peaceful protectors. Um, but what was even perhaps more striking was the people who came there from just everywhere, Indian and non-Indian people, uh, in an unprecedented unity uh, we went to a ceremony, and I remember beforehand um, there were certain restrictions that we had to follow there about how we dressed and so on to be uh, appropriately covered up, but but not anything too rigid. And one woman who was running the ceremony just asked a, a young non-Indian woman if she could just make sure her halter tot covered her a little bit, and she just said, right on, sister, and thank you. And uh, the respect and the love, um, there's a sign up at Standing Rock that says, remember to be- behave respectfully, peacefully, fearlessly, and with humor wherever possible. But for people who are listening, are they surprised to hear that members of Connecticut tribes are traveling all the way to North Dakota? Um, Out here they were (laughs) because it's such a long trip. It took us about 30 hours to get there uh, driving. Um, And and some of the people at the camp, too, they were also surprised to hear how far we had driven. But um, it's actually quite common when you get out there. There's people from Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Canada, everywhere coming. So it's really not that 
surprising. <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at the Dakota Access Pipeline Project, uh, and we're talking with uh, two Connecticut residents, uh, members of Connecticut tribes, the medicine woman Melissa Tantaquidgen Zobel of the Mohegan tribe, and Dominique Beltran of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Both have traveled uh, over to North Dakota in solidarity uh, for the protests that are going on there, um, not just about the pipeline project, of course, but for the rights of the indigenous people. I wanted to take a phone call from a listener now. Uh, Rochelle is calling in. Rochelle, you're on the show. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. And where are you calling from, Rochelle? I'm calling from the Cheyenne River, where I serve continuously. Although I am a Connecticut resident, I live in Glastonbury. I commute back and forth to South Dakota on a regular basis for here for the nonprofit. Rochelle, it sounds like, I don't know if you're moving or if it's just windy, but it's very hard to hear you. I don't know if you could uh, just, again, explain where you are. Yeah, I'm off speaker now, so that should be better. Okay, Rochelle, tell us where you are, because we're really having trouble hearing you. I'm sorry. I am on the Cheyenne River Lakota Sioux Indian Reservation, which is in uh, also in the uh, suit against uh, the Dakota Access Line. We are attached to physically the uh, Standing Rock Reservation. They are relations, and all of us will be affected by the water if it's contaminated through the pipeline. So it directly affects both tribes because we will all receive our water from the Missouri. So it is a, a joint effort between Cheyenne River and Standing Rock. And when you're out there, I mean, what can you tell us what you're seeing? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to talk a little bit about the militarization that Melissa began because it has gotten to an extremely dangerous point. Um, I was brought out yesterday. I was up on the at camp yesterday. And um, there are snipers literally surrounding the camp up on the hills, which is an eerie and scary component of what happened at the Wounded Knee Massacre of 1890, um, having been surrounded by uh, long guns and automatic weapons that are aimed down at the camp presently as we speak. Uh, we have had, um, I mean, these are, these are my people from, from uh, Cheyenne River, and we have had um, many, many of our young people um, brutalized by the attacks. Um, there have been no aggression on the part of the tribe. They are adamant about it. We are not allowed to have weapons, alcohol, drugs of any sort within the camp in order to keep this appropriate and keep the focus on the issues. We had a very a young man who's a very close friend of mine in Anipi, which is the sweat lodge, which for us is equivalent to going to a church, a mosque, or a synagogue. Uh, the, the sweat lodge was ripped down. The young people were pulled out of it, thrown into the mud, and kept there while they were being uh, arrested. Um, they've been terribly traumatized by what happened. Their sacred objects, like our chanupa, our sacred pipe, were taken away. Arvo Looking Horse, who is a dear friend of mine, is our spiritual leader, as Dominic said. Um, he went back to try to collect those sacred objects and uh, has not been able to do that. So we've had a, a great deal of aggression against us, even though we are on U.S. Army Corps land where the camp is, which we have been given permission by the U.S. government to be on. Well, Rochelle, thank you so much for giving us some of your observations. Um, I wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, Mary Catherine Nagel. She's a par partner at Pipestem Law Firm and executive director for the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. Mary Catherine, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much. So given the long history, when we look back at the U.S. government taking Native American land, what does this particular Dakota Pipeline project signify? Well, um, first I'd just like to thank the last speaker who called in. I missed her name, but I very much appreciate her perspective, and I also appreciate all that Melissa and Dominique have said. Um, you know, I think uh, the question of what does this signify, I would change that to what does this repeat? Because, you know, you can certainly draw connections to things the United States government has done in the past and say what's happening today is a symbol for what's happened in the past, but it's it's really a pure repetition, and it's pretty starking when you just look at it. And uh, I know Wounded Knee has been brought up. Um, I think it's somewhat ironic that the state of North Dakota has, from the very beginning, uh, put a lot of effort into escalating violence in, in a situation that initially had no violence. Um, you know, the Dakota Access Company is the company that brought out the private security force and attack dogs that were used against peaceful protesters. And I think people have to put it into context, right? I mean, here you have a litigation where a sovereign tribal nation has said, absolutely not. We do not consent to anyone destroying our sacred sites, our burial grounds, or destroying or damaging our drinking water. And in response, this private company and the federal government, because the federal government is really the entity being sued here for having authorized several permits without consulting with the tribal nations that are implicated or that are involved. Um, the private company said, well, tell us where the sacred sites are. We don't believe you. You say there are sacred sites along the path of the pipeline. Tell us where they are. Well, on September 9th, the tribe did. They filed papers saying, okay, we went out and, and we've marked, you know, here are the exact locations of our sacred sites in the path of the pipeline. Well, the next day, the pipeline company moved its construction company to construct on top of those sites. And then when peaceful protesters went to those sites to demand the company stop destroying sacred sites, that's when the private security company put attack dogs on them. So, you know, that's, you could say that signifies or symbolizes violence, but it's just, it's, it's more than that. It's a repetition of the state and federal government-sponsored violence that the United States has seen and used against Native people from, you know, 500 years ago till now. So it's, it's, um, it's sad, it's tragic, it's time for things to change, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but it certainly, you know, it, I think a lot of us are, are shocked, but then again, um, you know, we still live in a country that um, has not really achieved full recognition um, of what has happened over the last several hundred years and all of the, I think, horrific things the United States federal government did in an effort to eradicate tribal nations. So because we have amnesia with regards to those historic events, I think we also um, have a hard time seeing the current events for what they truly are in relation to the historic events. Uh, Mary, you said that um, you know we have amnesia, but it appears, and we heard from medicine woman Melissa Tantaquidgen-Zobel earlier, that it's not just uh, you know tribal members from around the country that are joining in opposition to this pipeline project and what it means, but also many Americans from all different backgrounds and faiths and cultures that are you know standing up for the people of Standing Rock. Isn't that um, isn't that an acknowledgement of of some of the past uh, the past transgressions? I will say we have acknowledgement when, for instance, the United States Supreme Court overturned its 1823 decision saying that tribal nations cannot claim legal title to their land. 
because their citizens are, quote, racially inferior, savages, and heathens. It is wonderful that we have Americans who, some of them for the first time, are saying, you know what, it's not okay to point a gun at a Native child just because she doesn't want to see her sacred site destroyed. You know, that's wonderful. But I don't know how many Americans it is. I think it might, I'm sure it's a few million at this point. It still hasn't been enough to overturn a Supreme Court legal framework that still says to this day that we are savages and heathens and that we have no religion protected by the Constitution and that we don't have jurisdiction over non-Indians who come onto our lands and commit tr- crimes. It hasn't yet affected. We still haven't seen the Obama administration say, you know what, we actually made a mistake. We didn't consult with the tribal nations involved here. We are stopping this pipeline. That hasn't happened yet. This is where so we live. I, Mary, I just, want to, I just want to reset real quick because I want to get our in-studio guests to respond to what you're saying. But this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with us are two Connecticut residents who've traveled to North Dakota who are members of Connecticut tribes. I want to first turn to Melissa Tantaquidgen-Zobel. Your, your response to what Mary Catherine's been saying. She's 100% right. Uh, This is a battle that, at its root, has to deal with a history of treatment that is very, very wrong. Um, The 1851 treaty rights of the Standing Rock are at stake here. Their federal trust management responsibilities are at stake here. Um, Their sacred sites and burials and environmental protection. But at its root, uh, we're dealing with issues that could be protected and are actually protected, strangely enough, under federal law. Indians are protected by the Constitution. Our treaties are protected. But these laws simply aren't carried through. And so, um, yeah, a lot of this is about attitude, and and it's time for that attitude to change. Dominique? Um, Well, it's just frustrating for me because um, Obama literally could just put a stop to it, and he's just not doing that. Um, and it's also frustrating because I feel like if this were reversed and we were disregarding treaties or laws, then we would be held accountable. So I feel like accountability needs to be held on every level. Let's bring in the the Oregon occupation um, that happened uh, into this conversation. Uh, I'll turn back to uh, Mary Catherine Nagel, partner at Pipestem Law Firm, executive director for the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. Um, you know, NPR reported that the most high-profile show of tribal unity since that occupation has been the protests at Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, what are your thoughts there? Well, um, I think it has been a time of incredible tribal unity. Um, I know Melissa and Dominique both spoke about their time there. I have to say that my visits out there have been some of the most powerful experiences of my life. And to see um, so many different tribal nations bring um, their children, their citizens, but mostly their tribal leaders as well, to bring gifts, to bring their ceremony, um, to bring their culture, to bring their prayers, and all in a peaceful way. And everyone who stepped foot in that camp has been incredibly affected. I haven't met anyone who stepped inside that camp and said, huh, that was interesting. It's, you know, it's very powerful. And I think because you see the people who are there, the tribal leaders who are there, the nations that have come, have come to stand with Standing Rock and to stand in prayer. And they've accepted the chairman's message, which is simply, we are, we're here in ceremony. We're here in prayer. And they're going to, you know, yes, they're pointing our gun, their guns at us and threatening us with violence, but we are not going to react with violence. And it's, um, you know, you can study these kinds of movements in history and look at MLK and Gandhi, and it's, there's a huge, powerful, peaceful 
prayerful civil rights movement happening right now, one of the most powerful, the, the most powerful I've seen in my lifetime. It's happening in North Dakota. And um, I do, I do so appreciate that we're talking about it today on the radio, but it's, it's, it's pretty amazing how, considering how powerful it is, how little media coverage it's getting. I want to take a phone call now. Um, Mary, stay with us. Bud's been holding from New London, Connecticut. Bud, you're on the show. Hi, thank you so much. I'd just like to echo everything that's already been uh, said. Uh, when I was a, I'm in uh, New London, Connecticut, and uh, went to uh, went to school here. Uh, when I was a kid, my uh, my scoutmaster was friends with Harold Canacuzin, who was who was chief at the time. Uh, when his sister uh, passed away a few years ago, there was a quote from their father: uh, "It's hard to hate someone you know a lot about." Um, this is about uh, environmental justice, uh, racial justice. Uh, and a quote um, from on the uh, UCC, the United Church of Christ website, uh, from Martin Luther King. Our goal is to create a beloved community, and this will require a quality of change in our souls, as well as a quantitative change in our lives. Um, the UCC is having a whole series of conversations on, on racial justice. Um, and, you know, the, the oil is not about need, it's about greed. You know, we, we, we don't need it. Um, there's going to be a whole shift towards uh, 100% renewable energy. Um, and this whole thing about violence, you know, our whole economy is based on, on big oil, military defense, and the war on drugs. Um, and, and we need to shift that whole consciousness. Uh, Stephen Pavar who's probably one of the most knowledgeable um, lawyers on Indian law in the United States, uh, points out how arbitrary Indian law is. And every time they, they get close to justice, uh, the laws change. Um, and I just, the um, Mary Oldman Tucker at Yale in uh, Journey of the Universe uh, points out that we need a new story, that the old story isn't working anymore. So we need a new cosmology, you know, and, 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 hold the, the earth in sacred trust, or it's not going to be here for future generations. Well, thank you, Bud, for calling in and giving us your thoughts. Uh, Melissa, did you want to respond? Sure. Thank you, Bud. Uh, I, I think this is the Bud that I, I know from some time back. Uh, that is wonderful to bring in the notion of it's hard to hate someone that you know a lot about, because I know our chief, Lynn Malerba, has worked for some time on a national Indian curriculum um, that's something that, that might at least make a dent in some of this lack of information. Uh, much of what we're fighting besides invisibility, especially here in New England as Native people, is just a lack of historical information. Uh, our history books are vacant. And so we, we need to have a place in the dialogue uh, of American history. And people need to understand the place of American law as it intersects with Native American law. So I'm, I'm grateful to have Mary Catherine here to share that. I wanted to turn back to, to Mary Catherine Nagel again. Uh, she's executive director for the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. You mentioned that there hasn't been a lot of media attention on what's been going on at Standing Rock. Um, but, you know, beyond talking about the issues of climate change and the need for renewables and the rights of indigenous people um, and the rights for water protection, um, but, you know, 
should more attention be given to the Native, Mer- Native American people in this country? I was just looking at Standing Rock's uh, website the other day, and they list the number of their tribe that are able to work. And I believe it said that the number of unemployed are s- is at 70%. That's mind-boggling mm. when, you, when you see that number. Yes, well, I think, you know, once again, when you look at the history of how the United States was formed and created, um, a lot of damage and violence was done to tribal nations and their citizens. And, you know, you can can really understand when you've, you know, let's say, for instance, if we were to show up in the United States today and tell all Americans, you can't work anymore, the way you feed yourselves is not going to be possible. There's this totally other new thing you've never done before, but you have to go do it right now. And if you can't feed yourselves, you'll starve. And that's basically what happened. It's like, okay, you've lived off the buffalo for thousands of years. We're going to send the army out to slaughter all the buffalo. Now go and try try and survive. Um, and all the violence. And I think that, you know, everyone keeps talking about historical trauma. Everyone's, there's been numerous studies that have been performed to show, I even know, I've heard of studies that can show DNA markers in certain people whose grandparents or great-grandparents were on the Trail of Tears. they the scientists are finding new ways to find historical trauma literally in the body. And I think what's alarming about that, when you look at numbers today and you can say, okay, you know, we know that our Native youth have PTSD rates four times as high as troops coming back from the war in Afghanistan. What does that mean? And I think what it means is, well, we can also say, look, we know that our Native women experience the highest rates of sexual assault rape, domestic violence, and murder in the country. What does that mean? And I think it just means the war hasn't ended. And I think in part the war, and that's what we're seeing in North Dakota today and what you see in all these statistics. And I think it goes back to what the caller Bud was mentioning, which is we need a new narrative. The narrative that brought us the Supreme Court decision that says we're savages and heathens, the narrative that supports a contemporary current you know, governor of a state using this kind of militarized force against tribal citizens, against American Indians. There's a narrative in place that's been around for a couple hundred years that says Indians are savages, they're dangerous, you know, that they're different than us. And that narrative is based off of a prejudice that can only continue to exist as long as there's ignorance. And I think that the more that Native people in the United States can tell their stories and share them in the media, in Hollywood, on the American stage. That's, that's what YIPAP at Yale, the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program, is all about. I truly believe, uh, as much as I've criticized the United States government and perhaps other folks <laughs> on the call today, I truly believe that once Americans know and hear the stories of our American Indian people in the United States, their hearts and minds will change. And I think that So I think once we can get our stories out there, there will be a change in that underlying narrative that has allowed a lot of the historical violence to continue through today. And we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Mary Catherine Nagel, partner at Pipestem Law Firm and executive director for the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. Before we go, I want to turn back to our in-studio guests. Where do you go from here? Well, uh, this weekend we actually have a veterans powwow at the Mashantucket-Pequot Museum. So um, we are trying to gather goods, uh, non-perishable items, uh, blankets, coats, any, anything that you could bring to donate and send out to Standing Rock. Uh, so that would be appreciated. I think grand entry starts at 11. Um, so if anybody can make it, come and 
witness some good dancing, some good food, and donate and enjoy yourself. I want to thank Dominique Beltran, member of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation, and also medicine woman Melissa Tantaquidgen Zobel at the Mohegan Tribe in Uncasville. Thank you both for coming on today. Thank you thank for having you. us. Coming up, what's happening with pipeline projects in New England? We'll find out more from Hartford Current reporter Greg Ladke after this short break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Did you know there have been multi-million dollar pipeline proposals to help meet electricity demand here in New England? Well, joining me now is Greg Ladke, an environment, energy, and agriculture reporter for the Hartford Current. He's going to update us on where these proposals stand. Good to see you again, Greg. Good to be here. So uh, tell us about the projects, and I understand there's been some, uh, I guess, uh, stalled uh, effort in getting these projects to come here. Yes. uh, The State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection here in Connecticut just uh, halted consideration of a number of these major proposals. Um, one of the biggest ones uh, was a pipeline plan that was going to cost something like $3.3 billion and stretch all the way across Massachusetts and uh, into New Hampshire. That uh, was dropped in April. Uh, the the uh, huge pipeline company that was promoting it decided that there was too much opposition. Kinder Morgan, is that right? Kinder Morgan. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're the biggest uh, in pipeline infrastructure company in the nation. They decided that there was so many protests and so little chance that uh, the financing would come through that they stopped, uh, they dropped their project. Now, the financing is a key here because what is being pro- was being proposed for that and other pipeline projects was that taxpayer, um, excuse me, uh, electricity ratepayers pick up the tab for basically most of the pipeline project um, over the next 20, 30, 40 years. The uh, There were protests from consumer groups. There were protests from environmentalists who felt that uh, we didn't need more uh, reliance on the fossil fuel, even though natural gas is considered cleaner than uh, other fossil fuels. Um, so, But the pressure was still on until the uh, high court in Massachusetts ruled, I believe it was in August, that uh, tax ratepayers in that state didn't have to be uh, or could not be charged with the cost of this project. And uh, a similar administrative ruling in uh, New Hampshire uh, basically said the same thing for their ratepayers, which left Connecticut, which has already passed legislation that would allow ratepayers to pick up the cost for these these projects, uh, in limbo. And uh, that's why the state withdrew consideration of another big project, um, uh, which would have ex- dramatically expanded the Algonquin, existing Algonquin pipeline across Connecticut. So this news is good for environmentalists, but bad for the Malloy administration, right, who's been pushing natural gas infrastructure expansion. They have been, uh, Dan- Daniel Malloy and his administration have been all in on getting more ga- natural gas into Connecticut. They want to uh, not only expand its use by homeowners and businesses, but also to produce more electricity. Um, 
the energy industry and a lot of studies say that there's a dramatic need for more natural gas in in the New England region. Um, it's supposed they say that consumers would have saved billions of dollars over the in recent years if there had been more natural gas available. Uh, environmentalists and other studies will say we don't need that, and uh, you can. Uh, reduce the amount of gas that you need by conservation and alternative sources such as solar or wind power. So what is, where does that stand now um, with this, um, the state having to invest now in these alternative energy projects? We had you on just a few months ago talking about, um, you know, uh, the, the debate around um, more solar fields on, on old farmland and wind power in Connecticut. I mean, what's happening there? Those projects are still going forward in the state but the state energy uh, officials point out that uh, they won't make up for the lack of natural gas. In other words, there's a big, big demand for energy. Um, solar power and wind power and hydropower will help, but they're saying we need a lot more uh, fuel to produce the energy that's in demand here. So, so it's, right now it's in limbo, I think. Mm-hmm. And earlier you were saying because of the court decisions in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, so really we don't – the state doesn't want just the Connecticut ratepayers to be, to, have, to be on the hook for this for years to come. Exactly. Uh, the uh, It's just too big a project. The Algonquin Line project that uh, Eversource and other partners are involved in would cost $3.3 billion. Uh, Connecticut ratepayers might be willing to pick up a share of that but not the whole tab. You know, we often focus on what's going on in our region, in New England. You know, how are other states doing it better in terms of, of investing in this alternative in energy? Uh, Massachusetts seems to be doing better, particularly with solar power. Um, the state has uh, put up solar fields along Mass, the Mass Pike and some other state roads. Uh, Connecticut is lagging in that area. Um, there are why, wind pumps. Why are they lagging? It's a whole range of reasons that have been given. Um, some of it is the lack of upfront financing by the state because it, ta- it costs money to prepare for these kinds of things. Um, others, it, it's just a matter of bureaucratic slowness. Uh, the state is still working to figure out exactly how much electricity comes from uh, that they pay for in each individual building. They may know, for example, how much electricity the, all the prisons in summers use. But they don't know particularly or they're starting to get a handle on how much each building uses and which ones would benefit from a solar power or uh, some sort of fuel cell operation. So it's it's a long – I mean there are 4,000 different structures owned by the state or almost that many. And uh, it's been a long, slow, multi-year process trying to figure this out. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Greg Ladke, environment, energy, and agriculture reporter for the Hartford Current. We're talking about um, energy plans for Connecticut. Now, we know um, from what you're saying that um, these plans to expand infrastructure are in limbo, as you said, but there is increased demand. What does that mean for us here in Connecticut if, if we just remain in limbo while there's electricity demand growing? The energy industry will say that we it's going to cost consumers more because they they simply don't have and that the uh, energy supplies are not as secure as they would have been if you expand the pipeline capacity. There's, so what 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 we're seeing is 
uh, a situation where environmentalists are saying, well, just push ahead with alternative energy sources. And the state is doing that. And the state has also uh, approved uh, or is in the process of approving smaller natural gas uh, operations to produce energy, fuel cell operation in western Connecticut, a uh, uh, electricity generating natural gas uh, plant in, in the Killing, Killingly area in eastern Connecticut. So uh, these projects are moving forward, but the big uh, source of energy, a new energy for uh, Eversource and electrical production generating plants, uh, that's still up in the air. You know, just the other day, Eversource sent out a release saying that the standard service uh, winter rate will be the lowest it's been in a while. How's that happen? That's in part because of the low that uh, natural gas is less expensive. Uh, oil uh, g- prices are, are down. Um, the uh, warm weather means reduced demand. So uh, you know we have we have these conflicting uh, projections and forecasts. Uh, and there, there is a certain degree of uh, help being done because there's more and more solar energy being produced in Connecticut, whether it's homeowners or uh, these solar fields that are going up sometimes on farmland, sometimes on uh, old, you know, places like forests that are cutting down. So, that, so it's, a, it's one of these deals where people are, are sort of in between. You're, we want more energy. But we want it to be clean. And and sometimes you can't have both. I want to thank Greg Ladke, Environment, Energy, and Agriculture reporter for the Hartford Current. It's a confusing topic. We're going to want to check in with you again during the session. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm about to lose my voice. The show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. This is where we live. <laughs>